Channel 5 presents Movies Till Dawn for your late-night entertainment. Tonight, The Deadly Mantis, starring Craig Stevens and William Hoper. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. So welcome back, and uh, you're about to hear a conversation that I had with the legendary writer-director John Sayles, although he's beyond a writer-director, he's also an editor, and he's a producer, and he's an actor, and he's a playwright, and he's a novelist, and he's... He's kind of uh, an extreme inspiration to me and a lot of other people uh, who, who learned about the ability that we could just go out and make independent film uh, from John and he, the example he set uh, in making The Return of the Secaucus 7, his 1980 movie, which kind of was his burst onto the scene uh, moment. Um, that was a really significant moment. Return of the Secaucus 7 was a movie that John wrote and directed using money that he had earned as a screenwriter for Roger Corman. Um, writing movies with names like Alligator and Piranha. Uh, Prior to that, though, he had a very um, early and distinguished career as a novelist and short story writer. Uh, He wrote a wonderful book of short stories called The Anarchist Convention and a novel called Union Dues. Uh, And this led him to screenwriting, and he kind of immediately, I guess, realized that in order to do that job right, in order to have the control over his movies that he had over his fiction, he needed to direct them too. And, you know, there's a thing in, in filmmaking, a, a kind of an old adage, which is like you never spend your own money uh, making a film. And John is an iconoclast. John doesn't do things the way other people do. And so he's been okay spending his own money, uh, making his art come alive. And that's what he did, as I said, with Return of the Secaucus 7. But what I remember most about uh, that, I think I was a teenager when that movie came out, the story behind it was very exciting to people because at that time, uh, it's not that it was the first indie film ever made, but the idea that you did not have to ask permission to go become a filmmaker, that you could go out, bring your actor friends together, write something for them, go shoot it, get it released all on your own dime, um, th- this was exciting stuff uh, in the in the late '70s, early '80s, and as I said, John really became kind of an icon uh, because of that. Uh, he's made another, by my count, 17 movies as a as a writer director. Like I said, he also edits his own films, so he really is the, the pure definition of auteur. Uh, and I'm fortunate to count him as a friend as well as a, an early inspiration of mine. Um, you know, he has, the themes that run through a lot of his work are frankly proletariat ones, and there's a lot about social justice um, and uh, progressive thought and fairness in society and movies like Mate One and Eight Men Out and City of Hope uh, and Sunshine State are, you know, they're, they're sociological documents as well as being good movies. But the, the idea of the proletariat is very much alive in him as a kind of a, a, a workforce. Um, John works a lot, and, and I've always found this very inspiring, as I think other people have in, in him as well. Um, he's always writing something. He's always making or trying to make another movie. If, if he's not making a movie, he's writing a novel, if, or he's creating a television show. Um, we had an evening with him at the Directors Guild a few years ago where he was interviewed by Griffin Dunn. 
Uh, and, you know, it's just, for him, it's every day he talks about what he does, uh, and yet it was such a kind of overwhelming and, and, uh, and, and terrific amount of work that we were talking about that when the evening disbanded and people were leaving and going down the elevator and chatting, everyone was saying, you know, I got to get back home and get to work. I got to finish that script I never finished. I got I to gotta dig in and, like, pull that manuscript out that I was going to finish one day because John just kind of inspires that um, and and it and he does it in a very you know very uh, uh, honest, eloquent, and unpretentious way. And I think unpretentious is another uh, word I would I would use with with John, which is um, you know again it's part it's part of his uh, I I would say proletariat um, work nature. It's just work. It's it's what he loves to do. It's his craft. Um, you know when we set up to do this interview, it was. Uh, in Hoboken, where he has lived and worked in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I asked him to do it, and he said, "Yeah, let's you know come by." And I said, well, "What would be a, a convenient time to do it?" And uh, he said, "How about 8 a.m. on Saturday morning?" <laughs> I, I thought, "Well, sure." I, I never. That's not what I expected. I've never really had anyone else to say like, "Yeah, come by early on the weekend morning, and we'll do it." But again, that's part of what I realized that you know he has a busy day. And uh, I, I was just a small piece of it that day, but I was I was very happy to to, to be part of it. So you're going to hear us talk about a few of his movies. These are like these other conversations that I've been posting. These are not life uh, career overviews. Uh, I, and there's plenty out there of John if you're interested in, in more about his other movies. But I kind of wanted to just focus on a few of his movies that I think are important have been important to me. Um, so we do talk about Secaucus 7 and how that came together. Uh, we talk about acting and directing quite a bit because he's nothing if not an actor's director. Um, and as I said, he's also an actor. We also discuss Lone Star, which is really one of his best-known um, works from the mid-'90s, a very powerful movie set in the Southwest, uh, as a number of his works are. For a Northeasterner, he's very sensitive to and interested in uh, the West, Um and in Mexico and in Borders, which is something we also talk about. Uh, and finally, we talk about Eight Men Out, his terrific baseball movie about the 1919 uh, Red Sox scandal, uh, in which he plays Ring Lardner, I believe. Yes, he does. He plays Ring Lardner, the newspaper reporter and great short story writer. Uh, so you'll hear us talk about this stuff and some more stuff. Uh, so enjoy part one of my conversation with John Sales, which was recorded in July of this year. 2019. But so it's been, I guess, what, five years since you've made a film? I think so, yeah. yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've had some writing jobs in between and I've written a couple novels. And, right. You know, um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, most filmmakers, you start seeing longer and longer gaps. Oh, yeah. No, I, I and and um, but what and I it's was, not because you don't have projects, right? So, but what I was what I was going to say is, so are you are are you actually now in as a as a writer? Is your process now? What can I create to shoot? Yeah, as I mean, opposed to you know exactly. It, yeah, the downtime. What would I like to do? Yeah. So so for instance, my first movie, Return of the Sakaka Seven, I had written three creature features for Roger Corman. Um, I think Writers Guild scale then was $10,000. Um, and then I had sold a novel and a short story collection. So I had 
$40,000 in the bank at one time. When is this ever going to happen again? You know, I'd been working in minimum wage jobs and working in a sausage factory for, you know, I was in the meatpackers union, so I was making $4 an hour. And uh, so when is this ever going to happen again? I should make a movie, you know. Um, and so I knew a bunch of actors from, from working in theater uh, who were really good actors. They weren't in the Screen Actors Guild yet. And I said, oh, I know a bunch of actors who are all turning 30. That's interesting. Oh, maybe I'll make a movie about people turning 30. Right. And we had, the Summerstock Theater was up in New Hampshire, and we had always stayed in this uh, ski lodge that didn't have any tenants in the summer months. And so I was paying, like, you know, per head a uh, dollar and a half a night to put people up. So I said, oh, we'll, we'll shoot it in that town and there's a theater there, we'll have a theater scene. And so we shot within a five mile radius for five weeks. I got five weeks out of it. Uh, the crew were people who had shot, you know, we had a seven person crew. There's a, a picture in there of the pretty much the whole crew and cast um, at this gorge. And, uh, you know, it'll be contemporary, uh, three day weekend, Reunion. Uh, no costume issues. We'll tell people where bring what you would wear for a three day weekend. Right. Everybody said I threw those clothes out. I was so tired of wearing those same fucking clothes. Um, and so it, it it was the only time I really wrote something that could fit the budget, rather than trying to find the money after I wrote something. I always have it in mind, you know. So I'll just say, yeah, could this not be a night scene, or you know, you know, I'll go through. With, usually I go through with a with the um, production manager and the first AD, and we realize, oh, geez, for that that one line, we have to like bring the actor back for a week, and we just can't move it. So why don't we give that line to somebody else? Right, right. You know, there's there's a lot of that that goes on. Return of the Caucus says a, seven. It created a kind of seismic shock in the you know I, I grew up in around the Hollywood mm -hmm. part of the yeah business, and it was. Of course, it's not the first independent film, but it was the first one that sort of told everyone a story which was, you can go do this. Yeah. You do not need permission. Or you don't, you don't need, have to develop it with a studio. You don't have to be John you, Cassavetes, right. who's already an actor and has all these actor buddies you know, who are unknown people to do it. Were you surprised at how uh, kind of, it was, a, it was an inspirational moment for a lot of people who wanted mm -hmm. to be filmmakers. Did you expect that? What was your expectation for that? We film? had no, no, I, I mean, the, the movie was shot in, in an almost square format because I, I thought when I made it is, really this is gonna be like a calling card because whenever I say to, to, to studios, well, you know, I'd eventually like to direct these things that I'm throwing at you as, as you know, uh, spec scripts. And they say, well, what have you directed? You know, and I said, well, I've directed a lot of theater, you know, and, and that doesn't make an impression. So I said, well, this will be my calling card. It'll be a feature-length thing, and I'll be able to show it. And, it. and it might get on PBS. Right. So we shot it in something close to a TV format. And then when, of course, they said, can you blow this up to 35, you know, we had to chop a lot of top and bottom off to make it into, you know, a, a 35 format. So there's some really, really ugly, you know, compositions where you're right up to somebody's chin or, you know, you're right. down in their forehead. And it was just what we had to do. We, we really, you know, there wasn't much you could do in those days to, to make it. And um, when we got a distributor, the deal was we didn't get an advance. They just paid for the blow up. 
Mm. There's another fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, or something, or ten thousand, I think, at that time. So the, you know, the out of pocket was like thirty thousand, but it was forty thousand to make the movie because we needed to, to blow it up. Um, but it was, it was, it's going to be a real movie. It's going to have ac- good actors in it. It's, you know, I, uh, I didn't really know the crew. You know, my my literary agent had played poker with one of them. <laughs> the sound man, and so I didn't know what are we going to be capable of. You know, uh, the first day I did a tracking shot where people got out of the car and went up to the box office of this little theater, and it took a long time. And I said, okay, no more tracking shots. Right. Uh, luckily, the camera operator was a much better. Um, I, I would have liked that movie to have been almost all handheld, and they were they they shot commercials, and there were in those days there was no handheld in commercials. And so I just could not convince them that I wanted this thing to look a little bit more like a funky documentary. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a lot more s- static than I would like it to be. But he turned out to be a really good handheld operator. So we did, a, we did one volleyball scene and one basketball scene and one charade scene where he handheld. He was really good. Right. And I said, you, so you've done a lot of hand- Oh, yeah, I used to do the football games at Dartmouth. And I, I used to work for Warren Miller, who did the skiing movies. Skiing, shooting through my legs, skiing in front of a guy, you know, doing these incredible moves behind me. So he was a great handheld operator, you know. And, and if I had known that at the beginning, I would have taken it off the, the, you know, we didn't even have a dolly on most shots, off the sticks. Um, but we really didn't have much money. You know, the, we were in New Hampshire. We, we didn't want to overbuy uh, 16 millimeter film stock. So we were ordering very close to what we were shooting. Were you shooting like short ends and stuff? Well, we, 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 didn't, we couldn't even buy short. You can't buy short ends in, in 16. Right. You oh, know. 16, of course. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. So so basically, we would be a couple cans ahead of our shooting, and it came by bus, and and it, and the place where the bus stopped was 6,000 salad bowls, which is in the movie, and we'd get our cans. So I had this one bar scene where we had 26 hours to be in this bar. It was closed for one day a week, and I had 11 pages or 12 pages to shoot there, and it was a lot of stuff. And we, I was worried about running out of film stock. And so there's a scene where one of the characters is singing a folk song and there's some cutaways and stuff like that. And I realized, oh, this is going to be, it's going to really just scream no budget movie if we keep cutting back and it's the same. Besides being boring visually, if it's the same angle and every time we cut back to him singing this song. Right. But it's a song, you know, and, and I want to cover the whole thing and be able to cut back to him whenever during the song. So we actually had two camera bodies. Um, both the cinematographer and the operator owned um, Ares. And uh, so I put one on a, a dolly and then the other on sticks. And I had two sticks. And I said, okay, you're on this angle and you're on this angle. And when I tap you with a stick on, your, on the leg, um, once it means you turn the camera off and you move in three feet. Um, and then you, you know, who are on the sticks, you're going to zoom in, you know, a little bit. And then when I tap you try, you start shooting again. 
And so basically, I had about a four-second overlap. So I was live cutting mm -hmm. with these guys. But every time we went back, it was a little bit closer. So you wound up with what, like a half I, a dozen? For a three-minute song, I had three minutes and 20 seconds of film that I'd shot. And the, the actor did a perfect first take. And right. I said, we're done. You know, and, and I still had, you know, another six minutes on, on the reel, mm. you know. So that's, you know, that's what I came from. So that's not hard for me to do when I'm writing because I know I, I know what this is going to cost. Oh, shit. You know, and, and I've, I've also been able to, like a couple times, both in um, Sunshine State and um, Gopher Sisters, I just look around the area, you know, while I'm writing it. Where am I going to shoot this? You know, oh, geez, in the civil, during the Civil War, somebody built a fort here for me. And it's, you know, admission is free. And we talk to the people and they say, yeah, as long as you put a little, you know, uh, disclaimer over the entrance, say, if you come in today, um, you're, you might be in the background of a movie that's going to be shooting here. Hey, we've got free extras. Right. You know, that's and, a, uh, that, and so I write it into the script. And I, and I think that, uh, like for me, as, as, as stressful, and, and I always think, Gee, I wish I had more time, and how mm -hmm. can I keep having to work on the same like four to five week Yeah. Thing. But it is sort of addictive to figure out these solutions. And, yeah, and I'm it, not sure I would know what to do with another five weeks of work. I, I don't know how you feel yeah, about I, it. Yeah, I don't like to work that slowly. Yeah. So there better be a reason why it's taking that long, you know? And if it's a technical reason, um, Let's not have the actors show up for half the day. Right. And get our technical shit together, and then so we're not wasting their time. I hate to waste the crew's time. I hate to waste my time. Um, I don't. I don't audition. I, I mean, I don't um, rehearse. I don't have the actors come beforehand and do a week of you know discovery. I, I want the shock of the new. Well, this is an interesting question. I, you know, writers who direct. Mm -hmm. the, you know, there's really kind of, I always think it's, you know, it's divided between the, the, the director trying to realize every word they wrote and trying to get everything in their head the way they wanted it, mm -hmm. or how do I now progress what I wrote into something live? And yeah. it sounds to me like you're the latter, which... Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't change lines very often, you know, and, and, and when I do, it's usually an actress says, you know, I don't know if my guy would say this, and we talk about it, and, and I hope that doesn't happen on a set. Occasionally happens, but usually it's 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 before, um, or I'm having a hard time saying this. The locution is hard, and we I rephrase it for them, um, or I'll I'll just say to like an actor, okay, this is in my Spanish. You Puerto Ricanize it for me, mm. you know, and and give it some flavor, um, but uh, I don't really change lines much. But I've had performances where because the first couple takes I just want to see what the actors come up with um, I had a guy uh, Ronnie Lazaro um, who's in, in Amigo um, and he's the head of the gorillas and I had written in his bio um, well you were a seminary student like Jose Rizal and you got um, and those were among the first people who got politicized and started to say we got to get rid of the Spanish because um, the church was so awful there and, um, and I didn't think about it much. And then we, one of the first things we shot with, with him was a, a battle scene, a, a, an ambush. And his hands are shaking as he's trying to load his gun. And I realize, oh, I get it. He's playing it as he's the brains of the outfit, but he's a seminary student. Mm. He's not a gorilla. 
And I thought, is that going to work? And then I realized I've got Bembal Rocco, who's this great guy. He was in The Year of Living Dangerously. He was this veteran Filipino actor who totally looks like he knows what he's doing on one side of him. And, you know, this, this other actor, um, Art Acuna, who's playing a, a half Chinese psycho killer on the other side, he doesn't need to be that good at it. He's just got to direct these guys. He can be a seminary student. Totally not my concept. Didn't change a line, but he totally changed. And it, right. and it just was even better than what I thought of. So you hope for that, even if you don't, you know, rehearse and, you know, get into a whole kind of, you know, who am I this time with the actor? Mm -hmm. I want that to happen before we get to the set. Mm -hmm. But you, you want to be open to, oh, that's interesting. Let's, let's keep pushing it in that director. And then occasionally it'll be the dynamic between two actors. They start doing something with the lines that's more interesting. And it's like, okay, cool. How, how much have you ever directed an actor? How, how hands-on have you ever been? Quite a bit. And what's interesting, I, I did um, uh, a movie um, called Casa de los Babies, and I had you know, six or seven really good actresses in it. And, they, and like after a day or two, they said, so, so are you really going to direct this? And I said, yeah, I am the director. And they said, well, usually it's just, can we do another one? Or that was great, let's do another one. And, and, you know, these are all terrific world-class actors, um, but you don't teach people how to act. You direct their talents. So directing for me is, okay, give me another one, but this time you're feeling everything that I just saw, but you're not going to let that other motherfucker see it. You know, that's direction. That's a, that's a way to do it. You're not going to change a line. You're not going to, you know, they can do that for you, but it's a direction. It's a way to go, you know? Okay, it, you know, It's a note. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, or it's, you know, you know, you're losing. You know, it's like being the, it's like being the, you know, Customato or, or one of those guys in the corner of the ring and say, yeah, yeah, well, he's killing you with his left hand. You know, you're a better fighter than that. You know, don't let him get away with that shit, you know, right. and that changes the dynamic a little. Um, in Passion Fish, you know, I, I, I had Alfre Woodard and Mary McDonald, and I would never give them a direction together. I take one in one corner and the other in one corner, and, and then when they come back together, the dynamic had changed. The it's lines didn't change, yeah. but the dynamic had changed. So I direct quite a bit, but I don't teach people how to act. In Men With Guns, um, you know, I, I, I directed people whose language I didn't speak. Well, I was going to ask you whether you spoke that language or not. I mean, it's so... Yeah, I mean, so, so I speak Spanish yeah. well enough. Um, and these guys It's a very adventurous Sp thing to do. Let's yeah. go make a movie in another language. Yeah, whether you I know, know, and the guys spoke Spanish, but they were speaking in a Mayan language that I don't understand a word of. So the first thing is I said, guys, you translate this for me, and please... Have it really be the lines. Don't have it be this asshole director thinks we're doing his dialogue, but we're really not. Um, and the the funny thing about that di dynamic was that um, the people that there were like six of them from this theater group, this Teatro Campesino group, um, who had started as doing puppet shows for Ralph Lee. Um, and uh, then they started doing things where you could see their faces. And then they were actually very good actors. 
and uh, but. It's a it's a village scene, and and the village has been told we have to give up these people um, and kill them for for the army, or the army's going to come back and kill us all. So it's like a, a village meeting for this heavy, heavy, heavy thing that they're they've been told to do, and so there's a lot of tension that I needed in the scene, and uh, none of the extras spoke their language; they spoke a different Mayan language. Mm. So I I. Through an interpreter, I in Spanish and this guy in, in Chol or whatever the, their language that the extras spoke explained the singing. And people go, oh, you know, and they'd never seen a movie before, but they were right on the border with Guatemala and they had relatives who'd gone through this kind of shit. And so that was, oh, wow, that's heavy, you know. And so, and so at some point they have to do a vote and they have to vote, yeah, we're going to kill the guys. And so um, I said, well, tell them when, you know, there's, there's going to be this final question of how do you vote. Um, you tell them to wait until their first cousin raises his hand or her hand and then do it. And then I, and then I said, until that one, you know, that, that count three beats and then raise your hand kind of tentatively. And so all these people are first cousins to each other. Right. So there was this wonderful moment, and they were, you know, they were into the drama because the actors, you know, the, the actors speaking this other Mayan language were were so good and getting, you know, it's life or death. And so they're they're ping ponging their heads around, following the conversation that they don't understand, but they know what it's about. And then there's this. So so what do we vote? And the one guy who's supposed to raise his hand counts, and raises his hand kind of, and everybody looks around for which of my first cousins am I looking for? <laughs> but that guy, the first guy had some, you know, and so eventually everybody raises their hand. Right. So, you know, another movie we made, Amigo, um, probably about half of the dialogues in Tagalog. And I found a, a, a good guy who was a, a reporter, but also had written some screenplays, and and I had him translate it into period Tagalog. Well, when I auditioned the characters, I didn't have them do it in English. I had them do it in what they were going to do. So, so I, I kind of knew what the scene was about, and it was interesting in that um, I could just watch them for emotion and not follow the dialogue, mm -hmm. which is that when you've written the dialogue, it, you know, it's, it's a little difficult to distance yourself and say, okay, you know, he dropped a line there, you know. Uh, you know, I didn't know if they dropped a line or not, but when th there was a woman who came in and she only had two lines in the movie. Her daughter is killed in the movie. And I thought, oh, how am I going to audition her? So I wrote, you know, before she, she did her, her, her audition, I wrote like a four-minute monologue by a woman who's who's talking about bringing her daughter to the hospital and she shot, thought she had a bad flu and they took her into a room and she never came out never saw her daughter again and i said okay i'm going to give you half an hour go translate this into tagalog and come back and do it for me and she had me in tears mm. you know and i said okay i'm, I'm hiring her so there's it's, it's there's a nice you know you were asking about directing actors sure. For me, the trick is, um, A, am I getting something emotional out of them? You know, and, and, and that 
I, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I cast them because they're good actors, not because I know exactly what they're going to do with the part. And so they may have an idea that I didn't have that I like, or they may have an idea that I didn't have that I don't like, and then that I have to direct them back toward something I think is going to work better. But then the other thing is because I edit my own movies, and if you make a, an ambitious movie in four weeks, or five weeks even, um, you're not going to get to shoot that much footage. Uh, you had to be doing a lot of uh, editing on the set. Right. Um, so the other thing that I do, especially with experienced actors, is to say, I'm not sure how I want this scene to play yet. I'd like to, I, I'll know in the editing room, where, where, you know, what, what version of this scene. Um, so I'm going to ask you to bracket the performance. I did this with Joe, Don, uh, with Joe Morton in uh, Lone Star with this one scene. Where he's this, he's kind of a he's a colonel in the army and he's having a crisis of faith. He doesn't know he believes in the army anymore. And there's a scene he has with this young woman who's a private who's fucked up. And and I said to Joe, you know, um, there's three versions of this scene. There's one where you keep your shit together, but we understand that something is going on underneath it. There's another one where we see a few cracks, and even the private is going like what's going on here. And then there's a third where it's like, oh my God, the psychiatrist is crazy. And she goes out there saying, whew, yeah. the, the, the commander is, is having a hard time. You know, I thought I was fucked up. Um, and I said to Joe, I'm doing three angles on this. Could you give me one of A, one of B, and one of C from each angle? And Joe's such a professional that he said, yeah, I can do that. It's one of my favorite of your films. And I, I, it's interesting you bring that up because it's a scene that um, you don't expect him to go there. Mm -hmm. uh, you, 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 you don't really expect him to ever crack, which of course is the, you know, the, the, well, one of the things that I find so interesting about it is that the, the, the father-son dual stories mm -hmm. are uh, axiomatic. One, one is somebody who's you know, trying to not uh, uh, ever reconnect with the father. Right. And, you know, the, the other is someone who wants to disconnect Yeah, he from wants the his father, father to yeah. turn out to be a, a, an asshole. Yeah. And then he, he realizes life is more complex than that. And his father had his faults, but it, actually some of the stuff, people admired his father for a reason. You know, and that's the detective story in Lone Star. It's not, and that's what I was able to tell Chris Cooper in my directing of him. Which was mostly with Chris because he's so good and he's he's so thorough as an actor. Was was a lot of it was more. Can you help me with this actor? Can mm. you you know you're I'm over your shoulder here. Can we can get a little more out of him if you do this? And so sometimes he's acting in a way that he would never do facing the camera, helping me out. Forty years ago, under Sheriff Charlie Wade. Rio County was as corrupt as they came. That's it, Wade. He could get ugly. Then, Buddy Deed showed up. How about you lay that shield on this table and vanish? You're a dead man. They called him a legend. He was a unique individual. They called him a champion of justice. May that man die. They broke the damn mold. His son is about to find out the truth. Follow me. I'm Sheriff Deed. Sheriff Deed is dead, honey. He's just Sheriff Junior. We found a body out by Fort McKenzie yesterday. You got any idea who might have put him there? Hell of a time to bring up old business. That badge. Didn't come out of a cereal box. 
start digging holes in this county, no telling what will come up. You two saw it, didn't you? I'm gonna find out one way or the other. I just think people in town ought to know the full story on Buddy Deeds. That makes two of us. Castle Rock Entertainment presents the new film from acclaimed director John Sayles. Gotta be careful when you go poking. Who knows where you'll find it? <laughs> Lone Star. There's real borders and then there's symbolic borders. And what a border is, and 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 so that, you know, Lone Star is is literally about a border that's enforced sometimes. Um, but there's, there's, what is it that we allow to separate us? Is it race? Is it class? Is it age? Is it sex? Um, and when we enforce that, what are we doing? We're, we're saying, this is us, that's you. you know, and what was interesting shooting in Eagle Pass, Texas in Lone Star is that, uh, Everybody in Eagle Pass spoke Spanish, and they were Mexican-American, you know. And uh, everybody in Piedras Negras spoke Spanish, and they were Mexican. Mm -hmm. And even they said, oh, you know, I went to visit my cousin. They do some weird things down there. You know, that, so even they, you know, where it was a pretty amorphous border at that time, you, play, you paid literally a dime and walked over the bridge. And you know, and you could go shopping at the Walmart or whatever, and then walk back across to Mexico or do the other thing and go get a you know margarita, you know, one of the nice uh, restaurants down there. Um, even they felt like there was some difference, you know, and they were they were primos, they were they were related to each mm -hmm. other in many cases. Um, so I've always been interested in that that thing, um, but then there's the symbolic border, which is like Harlem. It's a symbol. It's not just a place. It's like Hollywood. You know, as people always, oh, you're from Hollywood, and and you know, I I go out there and take meetings and stuff like that. And I lived in Santa Barbara for, but I never lived in Hollywood. So when we go on location, oh, Hollywood is coming to West Virginia. Hollywood had nothing to do with us. Right. Unfortunately, we would like their money um, with with who's just arrived in your town. Um, but it's a symbol to people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in, in the power of those symbols and then the wall. You know, when we were uh, shooting uh, Gopher Sisters, we were right next to the wall and we could see the, the they, were, they were called the INS then, you know, the, the Border Patrol cars come and watch us for a while. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're shooting a movie, you know, because we were, you know, we looked like we were about to hop over. Um, and you know they never came and talked to us. But I remember when we were shooting Lone Star, I would run along the highway in the morning, and uh, I was stopped twice by the border patrol guys and said, "Let me look at your feet." And they wanted to see my footprint of my sneaker because every morning they had a machine that smoothed out the dirt along the side of the highway, and they went and looked. And they wanted to know if you know the joggers because oh yeah that's just somebody who usually jogs around here instead of a wetback a Mojave. Wow. So even then you know right. and that was like in the eighties you know it was pretty heavy along there and that yeah. that changes your thinking and if you speak Spanish and you look Mexican American um, you're going to get stopped by those guys a lot more than if you 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 know pass for a gringo. How long did it take to do Lone Star? What was your schedule? I think Lone Star was six weeks, maybe seven. Mm. Um, you know, and, and we were, 
We were on location, but in a fairly small area. We went over to Laredo for one day, where it was about, you know, 98 degrees, and that was brutal. I didn't know that, you know, when we were shooting in, in uh, Mexicali for um, uh, Gopher Sisters, it was 117 degrees. And that thing, you, that app you can get on your, your, your phone said, 117 degrees feels like 118. <laughs> Gaffer's tape with the stick. Right. You know, it was, things were sliding down. And how long did it take for you to shoot, I, I shoot Christopherson and um, Matthew McConaughey out? Um, we had Chris for, for, I think, two weeks, and, and we had Matthew. Matthew had only done um, uh, uh, Dazed and Confused at that point when we cast him. Mm. And, uh, and I was looking for somebody who could kind of do a face-off with Chris Christopherson without getting out of his seat. Mm -hmm. you know, and Matthew's a, he's, a, he's from Uvalde, Texas. He knows how to wear the boots. And so he was like perfect for it um, at that time. And then, then he kind of got some other jobs. Actually, right while I think he went away for a day and auditioned for something and came back. So he was around for a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, but, you know, we do shoot efficiently. So you, usually actors don't have more than a day off if they come for a week. Right. You know? and, and very often they don't have any days off when we come for a week. I think it, it may be a, um, a testament to your script that Lone Star has always felt to me like it must have been a novel that you adapted, that you wrote, but it, it doesn't no. appear to have been. It, it's, it's so layered. There's so much going on in it, and, and so it feels epic-ish. Yeah, well, uh, I am a novelist, yeah. and, my, and my MO as a novelist has always been kind of a mosaic approach. So I have multiple characters. We often get a whole chapter from their point of view or more than one chapter from their point of view. And then they, they may appear in somebody else's point of view later on. And so you learn a little bit more about them from the outside. I write a bio for every character. So if you've got two lines in the movie, you probably get a quarter of a page or a half of a page bio. Mm -hmm. If you've got a big part, you might get, you know, and, and some, of them some of them are just informational. It's like, oh, you've been married for six years. It's a pretty good relationship, da, da, da. or, you know, um, you've always been nervous about. I, on my first movie, I, uh, I wrote bios for the um, characters in Sakaka 7, and one of the actors came to me and said, how did you know that I've always felt like everybody's second best friend? <laughs> you know, I said, this is not about you. This is the character. He said, well, well, you got it. You know. um, so, so there, is, there is more there. I know more about the story, and the actors know more about who they are. Mm -hmm. in, in the case of, um, I remember for um, Gopher Sisters with Marsha Gay Harden, um, I wrote a, a stream of consciousness from the character's point of view, about three or four pages, because she's a sociopath. And I figured, well, this might help her, just how this person thinks. Yeah. You know, but sometimes it's a little more informational. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of know more, but then there, the, the movie is, it's kind of like when you go in the editing room, you have a new universe, your possibilities are now limited to the footage that you have, Right. you know, and, and so the movie that you had in your head when you started out may no longer be possible. Hopefully there's a better movie. And 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 I yeah. always find it, it's it's strange, but the movie when you're editing it starts to it starts to tell you what it is. You, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mine I write in my I'm doing editing on the set and everything. They don't change that much, but tone changes, mm -hmm. 
And every once in a while, there's a whole scene. You know, I, I played a border guard in uh, Lone Star. I was in three scenes, and I realized editing it, oh, I, I don't need these. In fact, one of them's a little confusing, so I'm the only character who got cut out of the movie. I wasn't fine. bad either. You know, the scenes were fine. Yeah. They just weren't needed. Um, yeah. So, it's so, easier to explain to yourself that you, why you cut yourself out of the movie easy. than to an actor. I hate, oh, I hate cutting actors <laughs> out of a movie. I'm sorry you didn't make the cut, you know. And, yeah. it's, and it's only happened a couple times. But, but every once, yeah, I, I, I'll come in and I'll only have about, if I did an assembly, it's like a two hour and 20 minute movie and I'll cut it down to a two hour and five minute movie. So mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's just usually just trimming and, and tightening scenes. Uh, Your movies tend to be right at that two hour, yeah, two hour, to, and 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 which is and 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 of course your pacing is very deliberate and unhurried and and depending and, and on you're the not movie. worried about it really. It, yeah, it, I, yeah, and I always find that very admirable. You're, you know, I basically feel like you know one of the things that we're all dealing with in in uh, TV as well as movies is uh, you remember when Comedy Central started, they had a show called Attention, Short Attention Span Theater? Yeah. Well, that's, that's life now for anybody who's working in, in you know, movies or television. Um, there is this perception that people need to be stimulated every few seconds or they're gonna, you're gonna lose them. And I always just feel like, you know what? The first 10 minutes, I'm telling the audience, this is what you're in for, folks. Um, if you can't hack with hack this 10 minutes, you're not going to be like the rest of the movie. Right. And usually if we get them in the t first 10 minutes, even if it's not the kind of thing they usually watch, we got them for the whole movie. Mm -hmm. But I'm not gonna, you know, jump the pace and just start, you know... Begging for attention. Yeah, yeah. begging for attention early on, unless it's that kind of movie where you, you, you know, Lone Star starts with a dead body. You know, but it's not like a shocking dead body. It's there's actually kind of a long conversation between these two army guys. Right. And, oh shit! There's a there's a skull here, you know. And then and then you know the credits come up. Well, as your as your own editor now, I didn't realize that you hadn't edited all of your films. Yeah, there's three um, that you didn't. I yeah, think, Sonia Polanski um, cut a couple movies. She cut Baby It's You and Mate One, and then John Tintori, who later ran the the. Um, you know, the graduate program at Tisch at NYU um, and it started as a gaffer for me. Mm. Um, uh, he, he cut, and, and new baseball, he cut um, eight men out. Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a game, no player who sits in conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a ball game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball again. The studio just didn't want me to cut it, and so I said, I'd like to use this other guy. And, and John at least really knew baseball. So I said, look, here, here's the thing is, we've got this stadium for a certain amount of time. I need to know that I've got everything I need. So it was great to have an editor on that one, cutting all the baseball sequences while we were shooting. And then I said, and then just give me, you know, maybe little shots and maybe big shots. Give me a shopping list of what we need, you know. And so before we left, we had a half a day to, can we get a shot of a guy sliding into second up, base because yeah. he almost got picked off? Can we, you know, they were mostly little insert kind of things. 
but they were really useful when we came to, to put the movie together. Yeah, I, I, so I just did this baseball movie, mm. and, and I, it was such a pain in the ass shooting the game, you know, the games. It was, mm -hmm. it was so much work. My DP was very good mm -hmm. about making sure we got everything. Yeah. I was exhausted by it, because whenever you thought, and, and we didn't really fully sh shot list it either. We went yeah. out there, we kind of went out handheld and said, yeah. let's get this. But what I, what I found so frustrating is, Whenever you thought you had something, you realized you needed three more things to properly express it and cover it. Yeah. So every one shot was really four, which meant like yeah. the 10 setups really were like 30, you know. Yeah. Well, I storyboarded um, the baseball in eight minutes, 11 years earlier. And I used those storyboards and basically just the, the width of the lines changed. And so uh, we were, there were days when we got 80 setups. Um, and and because I knew, you know, first of all, there was a lot of baseball. About a third of the movie is is baseball, mm -hmm. and, and you need angles to tell the story. Uh, if you watch the World Series, they've got twenty cameras, and they have a whole, you know, oh, cut to the manager spitting, and cut to this, and you know, cut to the guy taking a lead, you know. In a regular game, they maybe have four, right? You know, but but I wanted the kind of twenty camera thing, and, and people in the stands, and all this kind of stuff. So I had storyboarded and I was able to do that because the newspapers in those days, when I went to the library and, and looked up the Chicago papers, um, they didn't just do a box score. They told you what happened to every batter, grounded out to second. Hmm. Well, the blocking doesn't change. It's always 90 feet <laughs> from home to first base. And then you take this angle and you go to second base. And the left fielder is always in left field. And you know, so you know, you know where the people moved. So the blocking is there. I'm right. not going to change. You didn't it. have to make anything up. Exactly. So yeah. it's just how do I cover that? And that the big question was. This is before CGI. We didn't have much money for extras, and so every morning the first question was how many extras showed up today. And then and I had gone around with Bob Richardson, the cinematographer, before beforehand, and we walked with with a you know a viewfinder around and said, okay, if we're on third base shooting toward first across the pitcher's mound and we had PAs to, to move for us in the stands, how many seats do we have to fill so that we don't, we don't have empty seats at the World Series? So I had a whole chart saying, if we only have 50 extras, we're shooting with 100 millimeter. Right. Yeah, and that's we're not I'm panning, for. you know. We had one day when we had about 900 people and I was able to pan once in the whole fucking movie. Right. Um, it was a really a pain in the ass. Um, but, we knew it beforehand, so so we kind of knew what we were doing. So having the storyboards, I realized, well, I need so many shots from over the shoulder of a right-handed pitcher, you know, pitching toward home. Well, home games, you know, White Sox are in their home uniform, you know, and we changed the look of the stadium for the, the Cincinnati stadium, and then they'd be in their away things. I, I need... 27 shots from over the pitcher toward home for, for all of these games. So we just stick the camera there and we'd run pitchers and catchers and batters in there and, and you know, we'd do like 27 setups in an hour. Do you think that you would do it that way again, given that, you, that, that was, you're shooting 35, the equipment's more complicated to move around. The, the, in other words, if you're, if you're out there shooting looser and digital and do you think you would have the same approach yeah i do yeah i think i'd have the same approach except we'd have cgi and we'd be able to you, use yeah, wider lenses <laughs> yeah. um you know and and then you know you we 
you know, the players have to do what they're supposed to do. So, you know, everyone, you know, I told D.B. Sweeney, D.B. was uh, playing Joe Jackson, who um, threw right bats left. And D.B. was a very good baseball player. I think he went to college in a baseball scholarship. And he grafted onto some minor league team and took batting practice left-handed for a month before we started. Mm -hmm. So I said, so you think you can hit a triple? And he said, yeah, yeah, it'll take a while, you know, if I get a good pitch. And I said, so I, I want you to hit a triple uh, without a cut. So I'm going to start the camera behind the plate. You're going to hit one in the gap, and we're going to meet you at third base. Mm. And then I said to the outfielders, don't kill yourself on this one. Don't really, you know, just kind of short leg it a little bit. And he hit a real triple, and it didn't take very long. It right. was maybe the 13th pitch or something. He, you know, I said, don't run them all out, you know, if it, if it, and he hit one in the gap, and we met him at third, and it's a great shot. Yeah. So yeah. I had some of those things, so it wasn't all just one angle kind of cutaway shots. Now, you just said that 11 years earlier you had planned all this. Yeah. Which, so if I do that math, it sounds like you This were, is before I was in the movie that's business. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. This is before you even made... So yeah. You weren't even in the movie business yet. Yeah. So when did 8 Men Out become something that you passionately wanted to... Well, I always wanted to do it. I mean, I, I always... You know, I certainly grew up watching more TV and movies than I did reading books. Um, but I liked reading, you know, fiction books. And But when I, I started, you know, I didn't know anybody in the movie business. I didn't know how to get in the movie business. I'd never picked up a camera. Um, so I thought, oh, it'd be cool to work for the movies. Um, but I can write, and I don't have to raise money to do it, and I don't have to hire a cinematographer to write. So I started sending short stories out, and eventually one short story led to people saying, so, you know, this is a long short story. It's too long for a magazine. Could you make that into a book? And that became my first novel. Mm -hmm. And then when I was, uh, I was acting in Summerstock and directing in Summerstock when my second novel was, was ready to, to get sold. And uh, I had not met the uh, guy who was my literary agent at the time. And he, he just said over the phone, oh, you know, you know, our agency has a deal with the Ziegler agency in L.A. So this novel is going to be, you know, also being represented as a movie property. And I said, I don't think he's going to make a movie. And it's a good book, but it, I don't think there's a movie there. But can I have the phone number and address of the, you know, it's a movie agency. So I got in touch with the Ziegler agency, and I get a call from Everett Ziegler, who's the head of the agency. And he said, ah, you know, and he said, you know, send something. So I sent the script that I had already written for eight minutes. I didn't own the rights or anything like that. I just, I just had adapted it for, hmm. for practice, but also as a, a sample of my writing. And he said, geez, you did a great job on that thing, but you're never going to make that fucking movie. There's a curse on it. I was Elliot Azenoff, the guy who wrote the book it's based on. Right. I was his literary agent 25 years ago. And people have been trying to make this movie for 25 years, and somebody's going to sue him. And so yours guy. was not the first script no. ever done. No, no. Yeah. Um, but he said, yeah, come on out here and we'll see what we can do for you. And then I got Piranha and, you know, got started. So I, I had, it was one of the first scripts I had written. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it, you couldn't make it for, for $40,000, which is what I made my first feature for. Um, so, uh, 
I had written it. It was just sitting there, something I, I'll make someday. I, you know, I always say I had a three by five card with my dream cast. So I started with Martin Sheen at third base and ended up with Charlie Sheen in center field. It took that long. Um, I was going to play a, a ball player, not one of the big characters. But by the time I made it, I was too old, so I played Ring Lardner. You played Ring Lardner, yeah. Um, which was fine. Um, well, but, you, got, you got to say, I'm forever blowing ball games. Yes, the, yes. The, the line, the classic, yeah. yeah. Um, but so, so it was there. And then I get a call after I'd made Sakaka 7 from Mid Sanford and Sarah Pillsbury, who were just starting out on, as producers. And they said, well, we've, you know, we, you've made a movie and, and, and we'd like you to consider directing this thing eight men out. We just ran into these Texans who have the, an option on the rights to the book. And I said, oh, that sounds good. I, you know, I have actually written a screenplay. They had no idea you would do No, that no. Oh, interesting. And I sent them the screenplay and said, oh, this is good. You know, let's, uh, you know, and they, they were new at the business. So they thought, geez, we have a guy who's directed one movie. We'll get the money right away. Right. And so for years, we went around with it. Uh, eventually, Orion, um, who, who made it, uh, they turned it down twice. And they eventually said yes because of the casting, you know, that there were all these young white male actors they wanted to work with and, and they were on our, my list as well. Um, so, so it was something that, you know, it, it was just, we just kept trying. We just kept throwing it against the wall and if studio heads would change, we'd go to the, back to the studio and run it by them. Right. What's the longest it's taken you to get one of your projects made. That's well, 11 years. So that's 11 years. That's the longest, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm 68 now, so I hope I don't have another one another that takes that years. long. Um, you know, uh, I had written Leanna before I had written Return of the Skalka 7 and mm. Eight Men Hour. So, you know, that took a while. Um, there's things I haven't made that I'd like to make someday. So. Well, that was my next question is how big is the pile? I've got five things that I that I'd really like to make that yeah. I, I read them over every once in a while and say, well, that, that would be a really good movie. I, I don't think one one I've given up on uh, called Jamie McGillivray uh, that um, you know it's it starts at the Battle of Culloden and ends at the Battle of Quebec and nobody's going to give me that kind of money. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's going to be in money. I we can't raise you know two million dollars for a movie right now. So. Right. Uh, I'm starting to try to think about what could I make for under a million dollars and maybe maybe make that much as a screenwriter and, and pull something off. But um, that would be like an epic. And, uh, and so I'm writing it as a novel now. Mm. You know? And uh, you know, it, it's, it's certainly expanding as a novel. Um, uh, actually, my, my last novel, um, uh, I've got a one in between that's about to come out, but uh, A Moment in the Sun started as a screenplay that was about the Philippine-American War, and we just realized we'll never get the dough to make that, and so I expanded it into a thousand-page novel. But, but, but you did get the dough, and, and Amigo, is a, it's an epic. I mean, you, well, it's, you, you, it's, made it's, a, you made a very big film with that. It's yeah, a, it's, it's a, about a million dollars and a quarter, and... Uh, and and we didn't get it. It was it was all the money that I had ever made screenwriting up to that point. And but in the Philippines, uh, in Mexico, it's probably about two thirds to a half of what it would cost for the same movie in the states. And they have very good crews. So I've shot in Mexico two or three times, whole movies down there. In the Philippines, it's about a third. Mm. And they've got they've got real film crews and wonderful actors and stuff like that. So we made you know we made a. 
an army movie. Yes, it's only one little, you know, it's not even a company of guys, it's really a squad who take over this town for about a million and a quarter. Really? Um, with, with, you know, all Filipino crew and cast and, and you know, wonderful people to work with. It's a beautiful film and it's, um, well, one of the things I think is so interesting is the dual language. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for years there was this convention that in, a, in, a, in an American film about any foreign country, everyone speaks English. Hey, I, work I with, think those days are gone now, but, yeah, you know. I work with Rena Moreno and she said, uh, this is the first time I've gotten to speak Spanish in a movie. Mm. Usually it's, why did your people take our gold? Right. <laughs> you know, and she does that very well, but it's not the way she speaks. You right. Know? Um, and, and then we had to, to you know, because she's Puerto Rican, um, I had to say, you know, we're not saying what country this is. So she and the two Mexican guys, uh, Pedro Amandar uh, Jr. and this other really nice actor got together and they decided they would speak like Colombians because mm. that's a very clean kind of Spanish and very kind of formal. Um, but yeah, one of my ideas is, look, I want to get into people's heads here. I, I, I don't want to use that convention that they're going to speak English with an accent. Um, but the advantage you're going to have as the audience is it's going to be like being up on a hill and watching two trains that are on the same track, you know, coming toward each other. And oh my God, they don't know that they're going to have this terrible crash. And I know people on both of those trains that right. got it smashed. Um, so you get to spend time with the the you know, the Filipino people in their language and, and really know what's going on with them and get the emotion of their language and then English, but they can't understand each other. Mm -hmm. But you know what, you know something that, you, that the characters don't know. Which is what makes it so in, in, unusual, really. Yeah, you, it's a, you it's look a at different size of the same. Uh, yeah, and you're reminded of it. Oh, that's right, they can't speak each other's language mm -hmm. and they're misunderstanding each other. In fact, the only other. Uh, war film I know that does that and it's really two films is the Clint Eastwood um, Flags of Our Fathers yeah. and the yeah and this point of view yeah yeah, and, 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 and taken together, it's the first time you've ever really thought of what was yeah. the Japanese side yeah occasionally you you know it, it, it's never half and half though you know it, occasionally you'll get the Germans speaking real German with subtitles or whatever right but usually the, you know that's I, I think they did that in Patton um, you know, and it, and it worked well, but there was just really not that much with the Germans in that. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, unfortunately, I think the statistic is, with a few exceptions, less than 2% of Americans will go to a subtitled movie. Mm. So you've put a ceiling on your movie, so it better be like a million and a quarter if you have any hope of making your money back. Mm. Um, you know, Hombres Armados is another one, you know, it, it, there's a little bit of English in it, but it's basically in Spanish and about three different, um, you know, native languages. And so when you go to get that film financed, and obviously it's full disclosure, how yeah. do you explain to someone you just say why, why it's necessary to do it this the way? The movie doesn't work otherwise, mm -hmm. is how you say it, and guess what? This is a, you know, Hombres Armados is about a, a million and a quarter. Mm -hmm. And we just got lucky and we got a couple investors who were, wanted to get their toes wet in the world of movies and then went on to bigger and better, better things. And I put a little of my own money that I had, you know, lying around. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't lie well, around. Well, you've never been shy about paying for your own work, which is so admirable. And yeah, well, it's, it, it's lucky that I, I have a good bread job. Um, John Cassavetes did the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Mel Gibson has done it. Um, you know, so, you know, you know, kind of... You gotta walk the walk, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, I, you know, uh, 
I don't make as much money as I used to as a screenwriter. Um, nobody does, I don't think. Um, and so uh, now if I have to think about financing my own movie, I was telling you before, I, you know, I, have, I have something. Man, I think I could shoot that in three weeks. You know, if I could shoot, um, you know, uh, 64 locations um, for, for less than a million dollars in Los Angeles in four weeks, um, what if what if I wrote something and there was really only one location? Yeah, one room, one house. I, I one, could yeah. probably do that in two or three weeks, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not have too many people visit. You know, my my problem is, you know, I is is like I, I often think in multiple characters, and then all of a sudden you got a lot of people right. around. But if if I could limit the number of people, so this western we want to do, you know, is a chase, and so we we. Um, it's called uh, I Pass This Way, based on a, on, a, on a book written in English called Paso Por Aquí um, that was in the Saturday Evening Post in 1926. And, um, How did you find that? He's it, it, just a classic, you know, uh, Eugene Man Love Rhodes. He was a cowboy turned writer. He's right. a classic Western writer. And I used to read there's some really good Westerns. Um, uh, Elmore Leonard's westerns are terrific. Mm-hmm. You know, I read that stuff before I read any of his detective stuff and yeah. his thriller kind of stuff. And a bunch of them got made into movies. Ombre is based on one of those, and the Three Ten to Yuma, the Glenn Ford, that's and him, the Russell Crowe. That's yeah, that's, that's, that's Leonard. Yeah, and a terrific writer. Um, but uh, you know, it, it we could make it for five and a half in New Mexico. And we were two weeks from shooting, and they shut the government down, oh. and a third of our locations were on federal land, and so they wouldn't even answer oh, our what calls. A heartbreaker. And our financing fell apart. And then we scouted in Mexico because we realized we're not going to be able to get that much money back together. And we could make it for about four and a half, and probably get about a million of that back from that and stuff like that in Mexico. But we still haven't been able to raise that. Mm-hmm. But it's a chase, and so it can't happen in one place. Right. And you got to feed the horses. <laughs> they cost money. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, moviestilldawn.transistor.fm. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Music